All right, we're continuing through uh, Jude's short letter, and we're getting to verse four. We're picking up right where we left off last week. We read verse three, studied through verse three. Now to verse four. So in verse three, just for context, he's saying, I wanted to write you this letter, but I had to write you a different one than my original plan because I needed to tell you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then he tells you why in verse four. Why contend for the faith? For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in, that is into the church, by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, so now he comes into his present moment, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. So obviously it's gonna be a fun morning. Uh, really chipper passage for us, but it's the next text, and we don't dodge the next text. This is the next passage. I want to ask you a question. Does your Christianity have a category for fighting? Does it have a category for contending for the faith, contending for the truth? I was seven years old when I heard two men arguing over the same woman, and the argument was actually in the midst of or in the form of a song that came out in November of 1982. That's why I know I was seven years old because it was on this project that I received for Christmas that year. Some of you might have gotten it as well. Do we have a picture of it? Yeah, there it is. 
So there's a dispute going on in one of this song, and the song is actually called The Girl Is Mine, and it features Paul McCartney, and Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney are arguing and fighting over the same girl. She's mine, no, she's mine, no, she's mine, no, she's mine. It comes to the end of the song, and after they're done singing, the music just keeps playing, and an argument begins, and, and Paul McCartney is the first one in, and he says, Michael, we're not gonna fight about this, okay? And Michael says, Paul, I've told you many times before, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I remember even then thinking, that has got to be the lamest line ever, right? That's uh, just even in my young mind, I'm like, I don't think that's going to get any girls looking my way if I do the whole lover, but I don't fight kind of thing. It just felt a little wimpy, right? Here's the thing. In Jude verse 3, right here at the outset of Jude's letter, he, he says, look down in verse 3 with me. I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share. That's the letter I wanted to write but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. In other words, Jude is saying right at the outset, I wanted to talk about all the fun stuff. I wanted to talk about all the sweet enjoyment that we have in the salvation of Jesus Christ, but I couldn't write that letter because you're not fighting, and I need you to fight. It's time to contend for the faith. That's why Jude says, that's why you got the letter you're reading, not the letter I wanted to write in the first place. It's almost like I said at the beginning, like our study of Jonah was aimed at a church that was all fight with no love. And Jude, in a sense, is written to a church that's all love with no fight. Because if they were already contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we're not reading the letter that we read just now, filled with fire and eternal destruction and chains and the need to fight for these truths and the glory of God that are revealed in them. So that's why we're looking at these words. Jude is need, doing needed work in the church in the first century, and because this has timeless relevance for the church of all ages, there's needed work for this letter to do in our church, in our life, in the church of Jesus Christ here in the 21st century. In other words, if we're gonna stand with courage and conviction, we need to be aware of two things. Number one, subtle errors. Subtle errors, and if you're following in your notes, we've got this point to fill in. Scripture alerts us to the reality of false professions, that is false converts, and false teachers false professions and false teachers. So he says, I need you to contend for the faith, and then he gives you the reason. Always pay attention, let me encourage you, as you're reading the Bible throughout the week, look for words that suggest the purpose of the passage. Sometimes the author serves up a gift, and it's the word for, or the word because, and they're telling you, I'm gonna give you the reason why I just wrote what I just wrote. So Jude gives you that gift in verse four. He says, I want you to contend for the faith, and you need to contend for the faith because here's what's going on. People have come in, you see in verse four, by stealth. So he's not talking about opposition to the faith from outside. He's talking about opposition and undermining of the faith from within the household of the faith, from church folks, false teachers who are inside the house. So Jude, he really, in a way, he highlights a number of categories of error that have hounded us throughout the entire course of 2,000 years of church history, and we'll try to bundle them in a few different categories. Here's error number one. It's the notion that jaw-dropping experiences are the measurement of spirituality. 
jaw-dropping experiences of the measurement of spirituality. You see the language that's used there in verse eight? These people, so the false teachers he's talking about in his day, relying on their dreams. That word is only used in one other place in the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter two, verse 17, to speak positively about when the spirit is poured out and your sons and daughters will prophesy and they will have visions and they will dream dreams. It's the same thing, but Jude is using it negatively. He's saying, these teachers, they come in and they're grounding the basis of their teaching and they're saying, you need to trust what we're saying because we had a dream. You need to trust what we're saying because we had this crazy, whacked out spiritual experience that none of you are going to have. Don't try this at home. But we've been in the interior. We've seen things you can't imagine. And so you need to trust the things that we say because we have a special kind of intimacy with God, which is borne out by the fact that have you seen angels do this kind of thing? Have you, have you had these kind of private revelations from God? Here's the thing. Look, Christians, even today, Christians can become fixated with the extraordinary in, in ways that undermine the ordinary ways in which God works in our lives as he disciples us and makes us more like Christ through his word and through fellowship and so forth. And it undermines the ordinary ways in which God works and it says, no, there's only one way that we really value and it's the, it's the strange stuff. It's the fireworks of power and miracle. Bill and, and Benny Johnson are the founders of Bethel Church in Redding, California as well as they founded a school called Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. And here's something that they relate, a story that they relate as a positive story for them of a student's experience in the Supernatural School of Ministry. It, it proceeds as follows. The student said, God told her to go to the chapel and yell, wakey, wakey. Nothing happened for about five minutes. So the student turned around to cross the road to go over to a shop. As she turned around, she felt the ground begin to shake and heard this huge yawn. She looked back at the chapel and a huge angel stepped out. All she could see were his feet because he was that large. She asked him who he was and he turned to her and said, I am the angel from the 1904 revival and you just woke me up. Do you see here? An angel has been sleeping for 105 years, waiting for two words to be spoken by this girl. Wakey, wakey. There's, there's better ground to stand on than that kind of private, mystical revelation as an intimacy, evidence of intimacy with God. Let me just ask you the question. Think about this together. Does, does God give at times in our lives, subjective impressions to his people? Does he sometimes give us guidance along the path, prompting us to go this way and not that? And the answer is yes. But so then how do you know that your subjective impression is not just your own mind? Or is not something else, something far worse, error leading you astray? Well, that's where we come right back to the Bible, right? We test everything against the truth of God's word. We test our subjective impression. We test our sense that God is leading us or guiding us in this direction. And we see, does it correspond to scripture? Does it, uh, does it not correspond to scripture? Does it contradict scripture? If it contradicts scriptures, don't care how big the angel's feet were, it's not God. 
We have solid rock under our feet in the once for all, infallible testimony of God in his written word. It's a gift to believers and the gift that it gives is stability. We don't have to be paralyzed by whether or not we've seen the right vision and know whether or not we're supposed to go this way or that. God's, the clearest lines of God's will are already written in his all-sufficient word. So even if the Lord seems to be impressing me to go in this direction rather than in that direction, even then I don't hold that as infallible. I don't hold that up and say it's like Gospel of John level insight or it's Book of Galatians authority. No, I'll even use the language if I'm talking to somebody about that, I'll use the language of saying, and it seemed like the Lord was leading us in that direction. And that word seemed is my effort to say, this isn't scripture. Like I'm not carrying a brief for this being infallible. This was what it seemed like the Lord was doing in our lives and in our hearts. So the second error is this, error, which is the notion that God's grace allows us to ignore God's law. God's grace allows us to ignore God's law. Look at verse four. They, these false teachers, are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. And there are lots of ways to promote ungodliness through teaching. And one of the ways to promote ungodliness through teaching is passive, which is to say, don't preach any of the texts that have teeth in them. Don't preach any passage in the Bible where God says, no, no, it's not left, it's right. It's not up, it's down, right? Where, where God clarifies and gives us moral commands, exhortations that he's not asking, he's telling. So if you completely and studiously avoid those texts, you give people the impression who are listening to you that they can just do anything and God is okay. I... Um, a family member of mine was in a conversation with a woman who came as a guest to their church one particular Sunday. And they were introduced in the lobby and then they, the woman attended their worship service and then my sister was talking to this woman afterwards and picking up where they left off. When they talked afterwards, this woman said, you know, I grew up as a Christian um, in a Christian household, but then I became convinced and have experienced deep soul consolation in the practice of new age mysticism. And she said, and by the way, I don't think that my parents or that Christians get it right on the issues of sexuality and issues of gender and homosexuality and, and so on and so forth. And she talked about her particular lifestyle choices as it regards sexuality. And she said, I think the Bible gets it wrong and I think Christians get it wrong. And asking whether or not this woman usually attended a Christian church, she said this, every Sunday I listen to Joel Osteen and I feel so close to God when he speaks. So, so here is someone who is living in total defiance of what God's word says about which way is up. And yet she comes away from Christian teaching confirmed in that direction. Friends, that's what false teaching does. One way to turn the grace of God into lawlessness is is to just avoid texts that talk about commands. Avoid texts where God is in business attire, where God is serious, where God is holy. Avoid texts where God straight up kills people. Like there are passages in the Bible, you know, where God, that's the thing that he does. He steps in and he says, okay, you're over. Uzzah, that's it. 
You touched a holy thing, you're unholy, it's over. Your, your life ends now, right? With that, there have been teachers along the course of church history who have built a theology called antinomianism, a theology that says, out with the law. You don't need the law. The law has no relevance for the life of the Christian. Everything's under grace. Well, look, the Apostle Paul taught that better than anybody else in the history of the church. Nobody taught justification by faith alone, apart from works, like the Apostle Paul. And yet the Apostle Paul says, here's what grace does. In, in Titus chapter two, verse 11 and 12, he says, grace comes and tells us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Paul said grace doesn't just come in and, and, and move paperwork around in heaven's courtroom. Grace comes and changes the locks. Grace comes and says there's a new agenda. There's a new you starting now. Old you is gone. New you starts today. Jesus did the same thing. He looks at a woman who's been trapped in a life of immorality and he says, one, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, Go and sin no more. And he wasn't asking. You got a new direction for your life. You're not what you were five minutes ago. There's a new direction for your life. The Apostle Paul said this, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So does the New Testament say come as you are? Yes. But the New Testament that says come as you are doesn't leave you like you were. Grace moves in on the soul and begins to make us more and more like Christ. All whom God justifies, he begins to make like his son, Jesus. He sanctifies us. In other words, grace comes on the scene in your life and it says, I'm gonna teach you to fight. Starting today, you and me, we're gonna learn to fight. What are we gonna fight? Sin. Every impulse in your heart that wants to run in the opposite direction of God, I'm gonna teach you to fight against that impulse. That's New Testament Christianity. That's not legalism. Another one, error, speculation, the notion that speculation is cooler than orthodoxy. So again, these teachers rely on dreams, and you get the impression when you read through um, this section, this passage that we were just reading, that there's just some weird stuff being taught. You know, slandering glorious ones. And what are they talking to angels about? What's going on? There's sort of this mystical um, undercurrent in the text that you pick up from the false teachers, which actually matches things that the Apostle Paul said in the same time period, that, that Paul is writing letters in the same time period. And here's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So error often in church history, and even today it's still true, error often comes about this way. It appeals to our pride by saying, I'm gonna tell you something you never heard before. This is utterly innovative, and until you get my book, you're not gonna understand the key to actually living the victorious life is understanding who the Nephilim were. You know, it's like the, you find the most obscure passage in the Bible, camp out there, hang the banner, like this is the center of Christianity and, and everything comes flowing into our lives once we understand who the Nephilim are. So false teaching often does that, finds the obscure passages in the Bible and reads those onto the clear passages rather than reading the clear passages onto the obscure passages. So arguably one of the worst books written maybe in the history of the church was written in 1990. 
<laughs> and it was, it was a book called Pigs in the Parlor um, by the Hammonds, uh, a couple. And it was based and marinated in pure and total speculation, and it's sold by the millions. There's 1.5 million copies still in print. It's been translated into a dozen different languages around the world. And the Hammonds taught, they, they give you uh, categories of 53 categories of demonic groupings with associative behavior that goes with all those evidences of demonization. So they, they basically said everything from overeating to forgetfulness to mental illness is really a result of we're demonized. We have demons in us and we need deliverance ministry. Enter my book, Pigs in the Parlor, because you can get free from your overeating, you can get free from your mental illness if you just read Pigs in the Parlor. Totally groundless when it comes to biblical teaching, but it was based in speculation, which is probably why it sold millions. Novelty. Look, here's a, here's a truth that will keep a lot of weird and wrong ideas at bay. A passage of scripture can't mean for us today what it didn't mean for them then. It can't mean for us today what it didn't mean to the original audience to whom it was written, which is just another way of, of saying, it's not like God is changing the meaning of texts of scripture like we change our socks. It's not like the meaning of, of the scripture of this text changes from generation to generation. The Bible's not a wax nose for us to press into it whatever we wanna get out of it. That's the difference between two technical words that prevail in the study of biblical interpretation, eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is what happens when I read my own impressions and desires into the text of scripture, and exegesis is when I carefully study what was said to the original audience so I can draw out what was actually there, what God put in the text, so I'm not manipulating it by my own preferences. So we don't want theology that is based in speculation. We want sound, biblical orthodoxy, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And orthodoxy, friends, that's just a fancy word that just means the clearest things in the Bible have been clear from the beginning. We're not the first people to read this thing. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit has been a good teacher for 2,000 years. So the most important things have been grasped by the church for 2,000 years. So we camp out there. That's where we hang the banner. We're going to need courage and conviction, so we need to be aware of subtle errors. And second, we need to be aware of sobering truths. And the first blank to fill in here, if you're tracking with the notes, is apostasy is possible. Apostasy is possible. In other words, it's possible to be in the group that associates with God, that associates with Jesus Christ, that professes to worship Jesus Christ, and then at some period later in your life to not be in the group that associates with Jesus Christ. Apostasy, turning away from the faith that we once held is not some hypothetical thing. It's, it actually happens. So, just look with me at the text. So almost all the imagery in this passage is imagery of eternal destruction. Look down with me at verse five destroyed those who did not believe. Verse six, eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. You just can't be more clear than that. Actually, maybe you can. Verse seven, punishment of eternal fire. Verse 11, just let these words pop off. Woe, plunged, perished. Verse 12, fruitless, twice dead, 
uprooted. These are not images that talk about loss of rewards for believers in heaven. These are images of kindling. These are images of fire, of ultimate last day judgment. And and here's where things get a little bit more uncomfortable. Because almost all those images, except for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, almost all the other Old Testament stories and images in this text refer to a group of people who had proximity and lived under the blessing of God, in the people of God. They were blessed with the nearness and favor of God, but they ended up kindling. Verse five, people saved out of Egypt. So in other words, just pause there for a second. This is the group of people who were rescued from Egypt. This is the group of people who were singing on the far side of the parted waters of the Red Sea with Miriam. She takes the tambourine out and they sing, the Lord my rock, my strength, my song has now become my salvation. These people were those people and they end up dying in the wilderness and the language is destroyed by God in the wilderness. And then the very next verse, in verse six, angels that lived in proximity to God were close to him are, are what? Kept for judgment, why? Because they abandoned, that's the word, they abandoned their proper dwelling. You could keep walking through, story after story. He references Cain, he references the sons of Korah, people who had access to God. These are people who came to church in their Sunday best. But Jude says they perished and they were destroyed. And Jude says, I'm not just telling you all those stories so you know your Old Testament better. I'm telling you those stories, Jude says, because they have contemporary relevance for our time and they have contemporary relevance for us right here in this room as God's people. What's the contemporary relevance of it? It's this, God doesn't play along with people who play religious games. God doesn't play with people who play religious games. Are you sobered by the warnings in the New Testament? As a Christian, are those just texts you just kind of blow off? They're there for you, and they're there for me, and they're there for us to be sobered, to know my heart could go astray. I don't want that. I know what happens if my heart goes astray, leading me away from God, and that's not what I want. There's danger there actual danger, not hypothetical danger. Apostasy is possible. And number two, God is immutable. God is immutable. So what is Jude doing? He's, um, he doesn't stop and tell you these stories because it, many scholars believe he's writing to a largely Jewish audience. So Christians who were steeped in the Jewish faith. So all he has to do is just reference the sons of Korah. They know the story. Reference Cain and his greed. They know the story, right? So he's not unpacking all those stories. He's just quick hit, speed round uh, list. But he's making these quantum time leaps through history from the fallen angels forward to Cain's blind greed, forward to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, forward to the children of Israel saved from Egypt but buried in the wilderness. And what is Jude saying? He's saying as he moves from those, that moment to that moment to that moment to this moment, he's saying that God is still God. That holy God who did not tolerate games is our God. He is a holy God. He is righteous. We don't sin with impunity. 
look, I do you no favors if I give the impression that you can flout God's law and come out okay. There are destructive consequences to disobedience and tenacious, unrepentant disobedience brings the most destructive consequences. Look at verse 15. The Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. The harsh things ungodly sinners have said against God. And God doesn't give him a pass. It was the great theologian, St. Anselm of Canterbury, who said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his own dignity. God is not zealous about anything in the universe more than his zeal for his own glory. That's why even in the New Testament, you have statements that God is not mocked. It's not happening. It's not going to happen. National Blasphemy Day is a thing. It's a day on the calendar where thousands of people all over the world try to purposefully say something to commit the unforgivable sin. And they come up with the most creative ways to shout blasphemies into heaven. Should God be there, we want him to hear this. And they post it, hashtag, one after another, after another. And Psalm 2 gives us a sense of what happens when human beings boast against the God who created them and gives them the breath that they're breathing and treats this God as small. And Psalm 2 says, here's what God is doing. He's laughing. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Our God is not safe for the proud. There is one place we can be safe from a holy God and it's hiding in Jesus. He gave us a mediator and in Christ, in him we are safe forever. We are hiding in our refuge provided by this holy God has provided a refuge for unholy sinners to hide in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, but we don't ever, we, we do dangerous things when we suppose that God is safe for the proud. So Brooke Hill's three, three takeaways. Number one, run to Christ for cleansing. Run to Christ for cleansing. True believers don't see sin as trivial. True believers don't look at our sins, our very real struggles, our very real weaknesses, and say, you know, it's really no big deal that I'm living in defiance of God. It's really no big deal. Charles Spurgeon said, and almost nobody in church history could preach grace like Charles Spurgeon, and yet Charles Spurgeon said, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife that had been crimsoned with his blood? And then he says, sin murdered Christ. Can you love it? He said, sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you embrace it? And the answer is obviously no. Christians don't see, treat sin as 
trivial. Look, there is no sin that's beyond God's willingness to forgive. He is eager. His yes is on the table. You come to him humbly, I come to him humbly. He is so ready to give us mercy. <laughs> There's no stain he can't remove, but we gotta run to him for cleansing. Second, resolve to follow the Lord. Resolve to follow the Lord. I don't think I'll ever forget um, my brother-in-law. I was probably 15 years old, and my brother-in-law, Joe, was preaching at a youth camp, our youth camp, and I was cut to the heart. I was convicted of my sin. And I, I went forward, and I was, I was broken, and I was in tears. And Joe had seen that before. And Joe knew that I knew he loved me. And he came up, and he, all six foot five, 240 of him, grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said, Matt, it's time. He said, it's time to turn the page. There, there's something to be said about coming to a point in our lives where we resolve and we say, by the grace of God, my old life ends here. From this point on, I'm following Jesus. Wherever he goes, I'm I'm behind him, I'm following him. And Joe was just telling me, speaking, looking right through me. He said, no one's approval matters more than God. He knew one of my biggest battles was the fear of man and that was why I lived like a chameleon. One day when I was with my Christian friends, one day when I was in a different way when I was with my unchristian friends. And he said, not anymore, Matt. Run to Christ for cleansing, resolve to follow the Lord, and third, renew your mind in his word. It's hard to apostatize while staying in God's word. It's hard to apostatize while staying in God's word and maintaining close fellowship with God's people in the local church. These are means of grace to keep us on the path until the day we die, to help us to persevere all the way to the end. Jesus didn't say, you shall know the truth and the truth might make you free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So the admonition for us as we think about these sobering words of judgment is friends, Christian friend, unleash the truth of God's word on your soul and may he keep us until the day we see him.